A new season of Bridgerton is here. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabby Collins. And this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix. Then fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz. This time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Michael Rappaport. And I'm Kibi Rappaport. And together we're hosting Rappaport's Rappaport's Reality Reality Podcast. Podcast. We have a passion for reality TV, and we're inviting you into our living room. We're dissecting the drama, and we're giving praise to the single greatest form of entertainment on television today. That is right. Reality TV is the greatest form of entertainment on television today. Listen to Rappaport's reality with me, Kibi Rappaport. And me, Michael Rappaport, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. Welcome to Part-Time Genius, a production of iHeartRadio. Guess what, Mango? What's that, Will? All right, so I know you know FDR accomplished a lot in his lifetime. You did know this, right? FDR yeah. was a pretty accomplished guy. Well, I heard that. I don't know if you knew this, but he actually once assembled a team of writers to help write his own mystery novel. Do you know this? I actually did because John Green told me this years and years ago when uh, when we used to work at Metal Plus, but uh, I actually don't remember any of the details. Okay, good, because I, I was hoping I could <laughs> teach you something. I'll refresh your memory here. So Roosevelt was a big fan of detective stories, and so toward the end of his first term, he held this dinner at the White House, and he and his buddies picked apart their favorite mysteries. This must have been such a fun conversation to listen in on, but mm-hmm. so one of the guests that evening was a man named Fulton Orsler, and he was an editor of a magazine called Liberty. They published all these mystery stories, and during the dinner, he asked FDR if he'd ever considered writing a mystery, and it turned out that the president had been playing with this plot for a while just in his head, and so here was his idea. The wealthy man named Jim Blake feels trapped in his own life. He's bored by his job, unhappy in his marriage, and he thinks all people in his life are superficial yes-men. And so the story is about Jim Blake's plan to escape, which is basically to run off with $5 million and start over with a new identity. So I don't remember any of those details, but it kind of sounds like Jim Blake is just based on Roosevelt, right? Yeah, it kind of feels like that might be the case. But the one thing that Roosevelt couldn't figure out for his story was how a well-known man with $5 million could ever disappear without a trace. So he put the question to Orsler that night at the White House, and the editor suggested they assemble this committee of mystery writers to solve the problem together. And Roosevelt loved this idea, and Orsler put together six well-known mystery writers, and, you know, each of them had to work on a different chapter of the story, and that fall, the first installment was published in Liberty Magazine. And before long, the full story was released as a book and then as a movie, both of which were a pretty big hit with the public. I'm curious, what's the solution to the president's mystery? 
Well, this is the ridiculous part of the whole thing. Like, none of the writers actually managed to solve the mystery that Roosevelt had laid out. And, huh. you know, the key problem of how to disappear with $5 million remain unaddressed in that novel, or at least it did up until 1967. And that's when the book was reissued with one additional chapter, and it was written by Earl Stanley Gardner. Oh, yeah, he, he wrote the uh, Perry Mason books. Yep. So it kind of sounds like this book was put together kind of like those exquisite corpse drawings where you kind of like try to draw an animal and then you base your drawing on the last squiggle someone drew. Was this book any good or, or just popular? Because I kind of want to track it down. Well, I, I was looking at some of the uh, the comments on it. I've seen it referred to as, quote, one of the worst suspense novels ever written. So I'm going <laughs> to go on a limb here and say it's probably not worth the bother. Or maybe that is why it's absolutely worth the bother, because it is that bad. But I do like the story behind the story. And, you know, since it's right around Halloween, I thought it'd be fun to settle into a nice mystery episode. From who were the pioneers of the genre to how did Agatha Christie crank out so many spooky stories... So let's dive in. Hey there, podcast listeners. Welcome to Part-Time Genius. I'm Will Pearson, and as always, I'm joined by my good friend Mangesh Hatikader. On the other side of the soundproof glass, trying to tape a magnifying glass to the side of a <laughs> pumpkin. It's pumpkin carving day here, Mango. So this is this is pretty exciting. That's our producer, Lowell. He's been working so hard on this. I don't really know what's going on with the, the magnifying glass and the pumpkin. He's trying really, really hard. So hopefully he'll focus on this. And I think what's going on is he may have missed the memo about us doing a mystery episode for Halloween this year. And this is kind of a last minute attempt to get with the program. But um, anyway, I'm excited about today's episode. Well, I, I do think it would probably work better if he hadn't already carved Darth Vader's mask into the front of it. But I do appreciate the effort that Lowell's putting into it because he always puts so much effort in. You know, I know you suggested doing the show on mysteries. And as you might remember, I was obsessed with mysteries growing up. I do remember that. And actually, you dressed up as Sherlock Holmes for a few Halloweens in a row, if yeah, I remember, right? third grade, fourth grade. And I think uh, Ruby has also gotten the bug because she's, mm -hmm. uh, you know, she's six now, but she dressed up as Inspector Clouseau from Pink Panther last year. And this year, she went as Nate the Great, which is basically the same costume without a mustache. But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> you, you know, it, it's funny because, like, my mom got me this uh, abridged Sherlock Holmes book in second grade, and I kind of just went on a tear. Like, I'd already read a bunch of hard Boys, Encyclopedia Browns, and then I got obsessed with Agatha Christie and Sherlock Holmes. But what's funny is, I, I was thinking about this yesterday, I must have been so insufferable because at the time, I had always like wander around the neighborhood just looking for dumb mysteries to solve. Yeah, I, I think it's pretty safe bet you probably were, but what, what do you mean by this? <laughs> well, like there's this kid in my neighborhood who just used to exaggerate and tell really dumb lies all the time. Like I, I remember him claiming he was the kid world boxing champion. Like <laughs> I, I don't even know what that is. But, you know, instead of us being like, oh, really, show us the trophies or like show us your punching bag or anything to that effect. I, I, I remember like walking up to him with like these other kids and pointing out like, oh, well, you know, if he'd really been around the world, he'd have a tan here and here and here. And <laughs> just like, <laughs> I feel like I got that from somewhere. But <laughs> yeah, that's a, that's impressive, and I can see that same quality in Ruby. That's pretty great. <laughs> I, I, I am I am glad that you you managed. Did did you in fact crack the case on that one? Yeah, it turns out he didn't win the kid boxing championship. Oh, got got to the bottom <laughs> of that one. All right, well, let's get to the episode. Where where do you think you want to start today? 
So I, I actually really like that you started with FDR, and I kind of want to go back to presidents for a minute, because one of the things I noticed this week is that like a ton of U.S. presidents were self-professed mystery buffs. Calvin Coolidge was one, Herbert Hoover, JFK, Ronald Reagan, and, and the list goes on. Actually, we were looking at something the other day. I think Bill Clinton was also into mysteries too, wasn't he? Yeah, he was. When, when he first took office, he reportedly tried to finish two serious books for every mystery he read. But, you know, as his term went on and the pressure mounted on him, like that ratio ended up being more one to one. But it's funny because like while that was great escapism for him then when he was in public office, he's actually still really into mysteries. And he co-wrote a thriller with James Patterson last year called The President is Missing. Oh, that's right. So if you were going to rank these, would you say Clinton was our biggest mystery fan turned president? <laughs> I guess. You got to uh, rank these, Mango. <laughs> I mean, I, I guess he's near the top and uh, and FDR too. But Woodrow Wilson would also make the, the top spot because he's actually the president who did the most to improve the genre's reputation. Oh, wow. So why would you say that? Well, you know, for a long time, mystery stories were kind of viewed as disposable. They were entertaining, but they, they really lacked substance or that's what people thought. And and most people actually relegated them to almost like children's material or children's entertainment. But Wilson helped change that perception. He was so open about his love for detective stories that publishers actually used his endorsements in office as ads when promoting their books. And Wilson was actually pretty instrumental in convincing the public that detective stories had merit. It's funny because in 1930, this book critic wrote, quote, two men are largely responsible for the present vogue of mystery stories in America, Arthur Conan Doyle and Woodrow Wilson. So you got the creator of Sherlock Holmes and the president. That's that's pretty crazy. It's interesting, though, that all the examples we've given are 20th century presidents. Like, if you think about it, were mystery books just not that popular prior to the 1900s, or were presidents just not reading them yet, or what? what's the scoop on that? Yeah, so the genre was still finding its footing in the 1800s, which is something we can come back to, but a lot of people in the 19th century weren't sold on popular fiction in general. It was kind of thought of as unsavory or, or frivolous, but there was at least one president who was on board the mystery train from the very, very start. It's good old Abe Lincoln. And uh, hmm. uh, apparently he was a huge fan of Edgar Allan Poe's detective stories, and he loved the work so much he could actually quote full passages from memory. I mean, it kind of makes you wonder what the draw was for all of these presidents. I mean, what are the odds that so many of them would be into such a niche genre? Because, you know, if, if we're simply talking about finding escapism, you know, why not read adventure stories or sci-fi or fantasy or some of these other genres? You know, what's funny to me is like that we keep talking about it as escapism because mysteries are the one genre that you kind of have to pay attention to every single sentence, right? Like mm -hmm. every sentence could have a clue. So you're almost like doubling down on comprehension skills or or maybe that's a, that's a good reason that people do escape in them. But, you know, in, in Lincoln's case, it was supposedly the logic of the mystery stories that appealed to him. And in fact, one of his contemporaries put it, quote, the absolute and logical method of Poe's tales appealed to his bent of mind. And I, I'm sure it's a similar story for other presidents who, who loved a good mystery. Like their job entails so much problem solving. So mm -hmm. it kind of makes sense that they'd gravitate to this like form of entertainment where they can sort of exercise that skill set. All right. Well, since we're starting to dissect the genre a little bit, I, I do think it would be helpful to clarify what exactly a mystery is. Yeah, because so far we've been using a bunch of terms sort of interchangeably, but mm -hmm. there are actually some pretty key differences, you know, for instance, between a mystery and a thriller. So just, just to start, we should say that the kinds of stories we're talking about today all technically fall under the larger genre of suspense. So that includes mystery novels, crime novels, and thrillers. 
So for a mystery, the driving action of the story is the solution to a crime, like usually a murder, but sometimes a theft or a kidnapping. Mm -hmm. So the story follows some kind of detective or professional in the field as they try to determine who did the crime and why. And so you can have what's called a cozy mystery, which are your Miss Marple stories or your Father Brown mysteries, where the action is set in a sleepy small town, making the violence of the crime, you know, all that much more shocking. And in contrast to those cozy mysteries, you've got these hard-boiled mysteries. Now, these are the ones where the hero is kind of a world-weary cop or a private investigator, like the Sam Spade character in the Dashiell Hammett books or Mm -hmm. Raymond Chandler's Philip Marlowe character, you know, both of whom were played on screen by Humphrey Bogart, by the way. And as Chandler once explained, a hard-boiled hero is someone who can, quote, walk the mean streets, but who is not himself mean. Which all makes sense. So what about a crime novel? Like, what's the difference between that and a mystery? Well, technically in a crime novel, there really isn't much of a mystery to solve. I mean, a lot of the times the identity of the criminal is known from the very beginning. So the question is more about how the lawman hero will catch them in the end. So, for example, the movie Seven isn't really a mystery. It's a crime drama. So we know who the killer is. And the bulk of the film revolves around two detectives trying different tactics you know, to bring him in. Right, you're sort of like frustratingly watching their process and and, right. and watching them figure it out. So well, what about thrillers? Well, maybe the biggest distinction is that ghosts, monsters, and these other supernatural elements are all fair game for a thriller. Like they aren't required features of the genre, but you're much more likely to come across them in a thriller than you are in, say, a mystery or a crime story. So just to make sure we keep it all straight, you can think of it like this. Mystery stories are the most cerebral and least violent of the suspense genres. Crime stories are the most dramatic, and thrillers are the most, I guess, emotional, kind of playing Mm. up the fear and dread of the characters. So each kind of story has shared elements, such as crimes and detectives, but they each have distinctions that kind of make them, you know, utilize their own unique things. So I, I know Edgar Allan Poe supposedly wrote, like, the first detective story, but were there suspense stories or mystery novels before that? I mean, it's impossible to say for certain, but you probably make the case for Oedipus Rex being the first mystery story, huh. you know, written by Sophocles. And it it deals with the title character trying to solve the mystery of his origins. And so to do that, he questions witnesses, interprets clues, slowly pieces together the tragic truth about his parentage. No spoilers here in case you've managed to avoid <laughs> them for the last few thousand years. <laughs> Who are his parents? But, exactly, but... And it isn't the only one. Like, there are examples of mysteries in early Chinese and Arabian fiction and probably countless others that we just don't know about. But in terms of modern fiction, I think it's probably fair to say. I mean, the one that's brought up most is Edgar Allan Poe's 1841 story, The Murders in Rue Morgue. And this is widely believed to be the first modern story in which a character solves a mystery by analyzing the facts and following the clues. So I I am curious, did Poe consider his mystery stories to be like a new kind of fiction? Because it kind of sounds like the groundwork was already laid by these earlier authors and he just kind of reinvented it for the modern age. Is that how he saw it? Or did he feel like he just like completely invented this thing from scratch? Yeah, I mean, I I think he had a pretty level head about his role in all this. You know, following the success of Rue Morgue, Poe penned further mystery stories, including the mystery of Marie Roger, and and that was in 1842, uh, The Purloined Letter in 1844, And a couple years later, he wrote a letter to a friend explaining his take on the budding genre. So here's what he said about it. 
These tales owe most of their popularity to being something old in a new key. I do not mean to say that they're not ingenious, but people think them more ingenious than they are on account of their method and air of method. But, you know, but what Poe probably didn't know is that he was establishing elements that would become trademarks of the genre. Just for example here, Poe was careful to lay out the clues throughout the story so that his readers could have a crack at solving the mystery themselves, which is part of what makes them so much fun. And that was a tactic that future writers like Agatha Christie would later use. And then another defining feature that Poe introduced was the idea of having a recurring detective, you know, appeared in multiple stories. And that, of course, paved the way for characters like Sherlock Holmes, Miss Marple, and plenty of others. Yeah, I mean, I have to say that was much more of a definitive answer than I was expecting. It, it does seem it like <laughs> Edgar Allan Poe invented the mystery genre is like how I was thinking about it before. I feel like maybe there's a little bit more to unravel here. But before we get into that, let's take a quick break. A new season of Bridgerton is here. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabrielle Collins, and this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Colin Bridgerton has returned from his travels abroad. Is betrothal written in the stars for The Eligible Bachelor? Meanwhile, the ton is reverberating with speculation of who holds Lady Whistledown's pen. We're discussing it all. I sit down with Nicola Coughlin, Luke Newton, Shonda Rhimes, and more to offer an exclusive peek behind the scenes of each episode of the new season. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix. Then fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Elliot Connie, and this is Family Therapy. My best hopes... I guess identify the life that I want and and work towards it. I never seen a man take care of my mother the way she needed to be taken care of. I get the impression that you don't feel like you've done everything right as a father. Is that true? 
That's true. And I'm not offended by that. Thank you for, for going through those things and thank you for overcoming them. Wow. Thank God for deliverance. Every time I have like one of our sessions, our sessions be positive. It just keeps me going. I feel like my focus is redirected in a, in a different aspect of my life now. So, how'd we do today? We did good. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy. Listen now on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to Part-Time Genius, and you were talking about all the twists and turns the mystery genre has taken over the years. Okay, well, so it seems like before the break, you might have duped us. Like, you made it seem like Poe invented mystery stories, but then also maybe not. (laughs) I don't know that I (laughs) duped anybody, but I mean, there are important caveats to the Poe explanation. So for starters, the mysteries that Poe wrote, they were all short stories, as you know. And if you want to know who wrote the first modern mystery novel, then the person you're probably looking for is Wilkie Collins, who wrote a sprawling mystery called the Moonstone. Now, this was in 1868. Now, like Poe's stories from a few decades prior, Collins' book included a ton of elements that have since come to define the mystery genre as well. What are you talking about exactly here? Well, you know, take the eccentric detective, the inept police force, a manor house setting, and of course, a reenactment of the crime to be solved. So, like, Poe gets the credit for mystery shorts, uh, laying out some of the clues, and, and Collins gets the nod for mystery novels. Well, even that is a, a little bit murky. I know you're wanting these definitive answers. I know. Maybe, you, we, got, we got to drill in a little bit. So for the last hundred years or so, Wilkie Collins was the go-to answer. But about a decade ago, there was a pretty big discovery made by a professor at Portland State University, a guy named Paul Collins, no relation to Wilkie. Uh, but it turns out that another writer's detective novel had actually made it to market before the Moonstone. Charles Felix debuted his story, The Notting Hill Mystery, in 1862, a full six years before Wilkie's novel. Now, the story initially ran as these eight installments in a weekly magazine. Then it was published in book form a few years later, where it was met with actually pretty rave reviews. So according to Professor Collins, quote, the whole idea of a detective novel was basically new to book critics. And in fact, they almost didn't even know how to react to it or explain it to their readers. One of the reviews that came out said, this is best understood like a game of solitaire or like a puzzle that you've been handed to figure out. Collins was also quoted saying, the genre really didn't exist at that point, so they had to explain to readers that the whole idea behind this is that you've been handed a puzzle. That's pretty interesting. But, you know, if Felix's mystery was such a game changer, then how come no one seems to remember it or like even the author for that matter? I mean, that's a good question. And the answer, as Professor Collins found out, is that Charles Felix didn't actually exist. (laughs) Of course, it's another mystery. Another twist for you here. Now, it was a pen name coined by the author Charles Warren Adams. And this is something Collins discovered while he was searching through the archives of the book's defunct publisher. Now, the strange thing, though, was that after searching through hundreds and hundreds of documents, Collins couldn't find a single word of correspondence between the author and the publisher. Like, you think there would have been a submission letter or some mm-hmm. kind of discussion of payment, but there was nothing to be found. So then the mystery became, why was there no correspondence between the publisher and the author? And I'm guessing the answer was he was the publisher? Yeah, man, Mango, you've still got it. You're getting, <laughs> you're getting the hang of this. 
<laughs> Charles Warren Adams was the author and the publisher. So Adams published his own mystery under the name Felix. And, uh, you know, and then when the company went under in the 1870s, the first mystery novel and the man who wrote it fell off the map. Now, that was until Collins finally cracked the case. That's pretty incredible. And and not to sell Wilkie Collins or Charles Felix Short, but I do kind of want to go to bat for our old friend, uh, Edgar Allan Poe. Like, mm-hmm. he may not have written the world's first detective novel, but he did directly inspire the creation of one of the genre's most enduring characters. And that would be? Sherlock Holmes. And, That's right. uh, Sherlock's creator was uh, not really that shy about crediting the inspiration either. Conan Doyle once wrote, quote, each of Poe's detective stories is a root from which a whole literature has developed. Where was the detective story until Poe breathed the breath of life into it? That's a uh, it's a pretty nice tribute. It is, but but you know, if you compare Poe's character with Sherlock, the similarities are pretty striking. They're both armchair detectives, not professionals. They're both brought in as consultants on cases that have the local police stumped. They even both rely on unassuming sidekicks to help with their cases. There's an unnamed narrator in, in the Poe book and, and uh, Dr. Watson for Holmes. But, you know, all of that said, there is at least one famous detective trope for which Conan Doyle deserved sole credit, and that is the magnifying glass. So hmm. apparently Sherlock Holmes is the first fictional character to ever use a magnifying glass to help solve a mystery. I don't know, Lowell's shaking his head and he's mouthing Darth Vader. I think he's putting in a, a different vote on this one. <laughs> so I, I, I wouldn't trust Lowell on this one. But I, I do want to mention, though, that even though Poe's detective was a clear model for Conan Doyle's, there was actually a real-life inspiration for Sherlock Holmes. So before settling on a career in writing, uh, Conan Doyle had studied medicine at the University of Edinburgh. And one of the professors he clerked for at a local hospital was a man named Dr. Joseph Bell. And he was this renowned doctor. I I guess he had this ability to diagnose patients based on like these super minute details, the the signs of wear in their clothing or the way they walked or the accent they spoke with or or even the kind of tattoos they had played into the explanation for why they had some sort of affliction. And as Bell explained, quote, all careful teachers have first to show the student how to recognize accurately the case. In fact, the student must be taught to observe. I mean, it seems like basically he took that approach to medicine and just applied it to to a crime scene, right? Yeah, so, you know, historians weren't even the first ones to make this connection. Apparently, Robert Louis Stevenson, who, you know, is also a famous author, also studied under Dr. Bell at the University of Edinburgh. And uh, Stevenson was so struck by the similarity between Bell and the, the fictional detective that he actually wrote Conan Doyle a letter asking, can this be my old friend Joe Bell? Which, of course, it was. All right, well, now that we've covered some of the undisputed kings of the mystery genre, what do you say we give the queen her due and talk a little bit about the one and only Agatha Christie? Oh, I love that idea. But first, we should take a quick break. A new season of Bridgerton is here. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabrielle Collins, and this season... We are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Colin Bridgerton has returned from his travels abroad. Is betrothal written in the stars for The Eligible Bachelor? Meanwhile, the ton is reverberating with speculation of who holds Lady Whistledown's pen. We're discussing it all. I sit down with Nicola Coughlin, Luke Newton, Shonda Rhimes, and more to offer an exclusive peek behind the scenes of each episode of the new season. 
Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix. Then fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh, my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your hosts of TMI. New year, new name, new energy, but... Same old us. <laughs> oh, yeah. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. But that's not all. We will also have special guests to add their thoughts on the topics, as well as break down different political issues with local activists in their community. If you like to be informed, And to expand your thoughts, listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. Okay, well, so before we get into how prolific a writer Agatha Christie was, I I do have to tell you one of my all-time favorite facts about her, which is that she and her first husband were among the very first British people to ever go surfing. Wait, is that for... You're just making that up. Is that real? (laughs) Yeah. So uh, she was actually an avid bodyboarder in her home country. So when she and... What's up? I said, nope, that's just not true. (laughs) So when she and her husband went on vacation to Hawaii, and this is back in 1922, she was eager to try out the hot new sport. And at that point, there was only one Brit known to have taken up surfing before her. And that was Prince Edward, which is funny because, uh, you know, surfing did start out as the sport of kings. So do we have any idea what Christy thought of the experience? Like, did she have fun? Yeah, it seems like she did. So in her autobiography, she later wrote, quote, I learned to become expert at surfing, or at any rate, expert from the European point of view. The moment of complete triumph was the day I kept my balance and came right into shore standing upright on my board, which is impressive. (laughs) That is pretty impressive. 
Although if you ask me, I feel like Christie's real claim to fame is the staggering volume of quality work she produced in her lifetime. I don't know if uh -huh. you heard much about this. All told, she wrote 66 mystery novels and 15 short story collections, as well as six romance novels under the name Mary West Maycott. Now, her most famous novel is probably And Then There Were None, which is typically considered to be the best-selling mystery novel of all time. Yeah, so good. There's an estimated 100 million copies sold. Now, as for Christie herself, the Guinness Book of World Records recognizes her as the best-selling novelist of all time, with an estimated 4 billion books sold to date. And as if all of that isn't enough, Christie is also the third most widely translated author in the world, just behind William Shakespeare and the Bible. Or whoever wrote the Bible. So That's right. Uh, you, you know, the thing that stuns me is how she actually cranked out that many books. It, it, it's pretty crazy. Yeah, it's a good question. But, but before we try to answer that, I do want to give a little bit of background on how Christie got into writing in the first place. Now, as the daughter of a wealthy family in late 19th century England, one of Christie's earliest acts was actually one of defiance. So against her mother's wishes, she actually taught herself to read and write. Wait, that, that's crazy. So she's like the best-selling novelist of all time, but she didn't actually have like a formal education? Yeah, not until she was 15 or 16 when she finally convinced her mother to let her attend finishing school in Paris. Oh, wow. But her literary talent actually manifested well before that. This was in her early teens. Actually, at the age of 11, Christie made her print debut with a poem published in a local London newspaper. By her late teens, she had multiple poems published in the Poetry Review, and she had a few short stories under her belt, too, by that point. Were those mysteries? Actually, they weren't. I mean, Christie never thought about writing a detective story until one day when her older sister, Margaret, basically dared her to try one out. So according to Margaret, mystery stories required complicated plots and weaving all the pieces together would be just too much for her little sister to handle. <laughs> it feels like such an older sibling like thing to say, but, that's, but that's she it. accepted that challenge, it seems like. Yes, she did. And just looking around, Christy found a wealth of inspiration. I mean, there were lonely widows, small town doctors, military gentlemen, plus all the local feuds and family rivalries that an avid people watcher would ever need to write these stories. And so all of these casual observations of village drama kind of sparked these ideas for new characters, new plots. And so Christy doggedly recorded these in her 100-plus notebooks. Then later on, Christy would piece together, you know, all of these things into various plot ideas. And this was a task she often enjoyed while snacking on apples and relaxing in her huge Victorian bathtub. That's how I prep for all of our episodes, <laughs> by the way. So we have that in common. I know. I, I, I wish I could write like that. It's, it's amazing. So she dreamed up all these plots in her bathtub. Well, the ones early in her career are probably the safest bet for that. And as time went on, bathtubs got smaller and smaller until Christy finally ditched the tub for a writing desk. As she once lamented, nowadays they don't build baths like that. I'd rather given up the practice. That feels like a shame. It feels like between all her family money and profit from her books, she could have like afforded to get herself a bigger bathtub if she wanted. But what do we know about her actual writing process? Like after she had all these notes assembled and the plot mapped out, how fast was she at actually writing the books? Well, according to Christie's grandson, Matthew Pritchard, she would spend about three months on a book at the peak of her career. And that covered everything from the first draft to the final edit that would be sent off to the publisher. And as impressive a turnaround as that is, it's even more impressive when you consider that Christie typically worked on at least two books at a time. And 
That may sound crazy, but that's the kind of pace she had to maintain in order to meet these deadlines. So for many years of her career, Christy stuck to a schedule of two books per year, including one that was always timed for the holiday season, <laughs> what the marketers called the Christy for Christmas book. And, you know, the reason I bring up all of this is because it perfectly tees up probably my favorite Agatha Christie quote, the time that she credited her tremendous output for being, and I quote, a sausage machine, a perfect sausage machine. <laughs> I like that quote. It, it feels like you should have uh, saved that for the fact off. Yeah, probably should have. Well, <laughs> so I, I don't want to make it seem like all of this came super easy for Christy. I mean, she was an incredibly disciplined writer and it clearly took a toll on her. In fact, there was one time when a reporter asked about her writing process and her response was, quote, there is no agony like it. You sit in a room, biting pencils, looking at a typewriter, walking about, or casting yourself down on a sofa, feeling like you want to cry your head off. Oh, man. So even a perfect sausage machine like breaks down every once in a while. Yeah, <laughs> it kind of seems like it. <laughs> well, I do like the way you described her books as clockwork mysteries, because the thing that always struck me about her stories is how neatly everything fits together. Like the solution to her mysteries is always straightforward and, and based on these simple observations that anyone can make. So it's not like you need a fancy higher education to figure it out which I'm sure is a huge part of the appeal. I, I feel like uh, you might look at it and think like Christy fooled you the first time, but there's this promise that if you're extra observant the next time around, you might crack the case before Miss Marple or, or Hercule Poirot or whoever. Yeah, and you know, if not, it's still fun to be fooled, I think. I mean, that's after all why we read mysteries in the first place. Absolutely. But there is still one last mystery we need to get to the bottom of. Who's taking home today's fact off trophy? All right, let's kick it off. There's this great story about Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, and I don't know if it's true, but apparently he was a total prankster. He supposedly once sent a telegram to 12 of his friends that said, flee at once, the secret is discovered. And within a day, they'd all fled the country, which is something I'm sure they'd all laughed about, you know, for years to come. Yeah, <laughs> those who could get back into the country. So I'm going to start off with an Agatha Christie fact. It turns out one of her most famous characters, uh, the Belgian detective Hercule Poirot, was the first and so far only fictional character to receive an obituary in the New York Times. And the funny part is that Poirot's creator was far less broken up about his passing than the New York Times was. The detective met his fate in a, a book called Curtains, Poirot's Last Case, which was released in the U.S. in 1975. But Christie had actually written the manuscript for Poirot's Last Case way back in the 1940s, largely because she'd grown so bored and tired of the character that she was already dreaming of killing him off. <laughs> you know, I know Conan Doyle, you know, tried to kill off Sherlock at one point for the same reason, mm -hmm. but I actually didn't know that Christie hated Poirot so much. What, what, what did she dislike about him? Well, she called him a, quote, detestable, bombastic, tiresome, egocentric little creep. So it sounds like she pretty much disliked everything about yeah, him. sounds like it. All right, well, the next fact is one of the great unsolved mysteries that Conan Doyle left behind for us, and that's the true location of Sherlock's famous London apartment at uh, 221B Baker Street. Now, you might assume the address is the location, but that is sadly not the case. Back when mysteries were written, Baker Street addresses didn't go as high as 221, and Conan Doyle flat out refused to reveal his inspiration for the apartment. 
So for going on 100 years now, scholars have been trying to track it down for themselves. You've got these dedicated fans who have scrutinized every number mentioned in the Holmes books for clues, and some have even mapped out all the backyards on Baker Street, hoping that one of them will match up these details, you know, that were mentioned in the stories. No luck as of yet, but you can be sure that someone will keep trying. So here's a fun one I found out about one of my favorite TV detectives, and that's Inspector Gadget. So Mm -hmm. according to IGN, Inspector Gadget was originally meant to have a big, bushy mustache. And (laughs) he actually does have one in the pilot episode. But after someone at MGM viewed that first episode, the studio called the producers and complained that Gadget looked too much like Inspector Clouseau from the Pink Panther movies. So in order to avoid a lawsuit, Inspector Gadget shaved off his mustache. All right, so weirdly, I actually looked up some Inspector Gadget trivia, too. And one of the things I've always wondered is how did he become this half-man, half-machine hybrid that we all know and love? And it's a mystery that was never addressed in the original show. But according to an official Inspector Gadget trading card from 1991, which, as you know, I always keep in my wallet (laughs) at all times, Inspector Gadget was an average police inspector named John Brown until one fateful day when he slipped on a banana peel fell right down a flight of stairs. The next day, he woke up from an operation only to find that now he had, and I quote, more than 1,300 crime-fighting gadgets attached to his body. Which is kind of a dark origin story. Yeah, it is. I can't wait for, like, Todd Phillips to direct that. But uh, it it also solves a mystery I've always wondered about. And uh, today is Halloween, so I think you win the trophy this week. Congratulations, you out-gadgeted me. All right, after all these years. So, all right, well, that's going to do it for today's Part-Time Genius from Gabe, Lowell, Mango, and me. Thanks so much for listening. Have a happy Halloween, and we'll be back soon with another episode. Part-Time Genius is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. A new season of Bridgerton is here. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabby Collins. And this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix. Then fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz. This time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Michael Rappaport. And I'm Kibi Rappaport. And together we're hosting Rappaport's Rappaport's Reality Podcast. Podcast. We have a passion for reality TV, and we're inviting you into our living room. We're dissecting the drama, and we're giving praise to the single greatest form of entertainment on television today. That is right. 
Reality TV is the greatest form of entertainment on television today. Listen to Rappaport's reality with me, Kibi Rappaport. And me, Michael Rappaport, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. 